the pairing of Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day makes for a very strange hybrid holiday. How does one celebrate Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day together? Feasting on romantic dinners and chocolates meets fasting. Giving gifts meets giving things up for Lent. School kids exchanging cute and colorful cards while on the same day, maybe even at the same moment, people line up to have their faces marked one by one with a symbol of torture and execution. I know. When you put it that way, yikes. I mean, thanks a lot for spoiling our Valentine's party, Ash Wednesday. But if you think again for a moment about the overlap of the holiday and the holy day, they might have more in common than you think. Ash Wednesday is a day we celebrate once a year. It's a day that kind of sneaks up on us. Valentine's does the same. Valentine's even gets a bad rap sometimes for being, you've heard it, a commercialized holiday, right? A Hallmark holiday. Invented by retailers to sell cards and gifts and pressure people into buying them. I can hear the critics so clearly. Why do we need a day to say what we already know is true? If you love someone the other 364 days of the year, why wait for a special day to tell them? If we're not careful, those objections sound a little like the old joke about the man whose wife complained, you never tell me that you love me anymore. To which he replied, I told you once. If something changes, I'll let you know. Not, not a good Valentine's Day move, by the way, in case you were wondering. Ash Wednesday gets a bad rap too, although for different reasons. The most common criticism that I've heard is people complaining that it's too Catholic. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> or that people are wearing a cross around for attention, a sort of a spiritual selfie opportunity where we put our piety on display for others. See social media later for the number of forehead cross selfies that you will see. Mine might be included. I heard one friend helpfully christen this with the term the ash tag. Feel free to use it, just make sure you cite me. Other people object to Ash Wednesday and possibly Lent as well of being so solemn, so dark. Can't we just get onto the happy things already? I mean, Easter's right around the corner. Why do we need a day to remember the gravity of our sin, a whole season to repent? All that's been forgiven, we might say. Why bring it up again? It's almost as if we're saying, Jesus, I told you I'm sorry once. If anything changes, I'll let you know. So the holiday and the holy day are forcing us to take a bit of a quiz today. And the question is this, can an inward sentiment be expressed publicly without just putting on a show? Our scripture readings for today have a lot to say about this. These are the same scripture readings for every Ash Wednesday, by the way, and there's something even more humbling, if it could get even more humbling, about knowing our need is so deep that they 
come back again year after year and bring us to a deeper place. First, you have the prophet Joel with his helpful admonition to tear our hearts and not our clothing. Joel wants repentance to leave an inward mark, not just to settle for some outward alterations. On the inward versus outward question, Joel votes that inward is definitely where it has to begin. But then he confuses things a bit by calling for a corporate gathering as the rightful place for true repentance, where turning to God should happen in a crowd. Blow the trumpets, Joel cries. Tell everyone you know we're launching a fast. Get everybody together, young and old. Let's make repentance a group project. So for Joel, repentance may have the true goal of inward change, but it's also decidedly corporate. Repentance is a party he wants everyone invited to. As Jonathan Powers says about worship, Joel would say about repentance, it may be personal, but it's never individual. Joel's helping us with our quiz today, helping us answer these questions. Is repentance something you do publicly or privately? Is it individual or is it corporate? Our friend Matthew writes in his gospel the same theme. He carries it on in the New Testament as well with even more specific instructions on this topic. Don't call attention to your good deeds, Matthew says. Don't give by waving your gifts around and showing all around what you've given. Don't pray so loudly and publicly that you gather the attention of people. Make sure your gifts, make sure your prayers, make sure your fasting are all for an audience of one. When you fast, Matthew tells us, don't mark your face to show it. Instead, wash your face, go about your business. That's an odd sort of thing to read on the only day when we literally have our faces marked in worship. But Matthew wants to warn us about something. He wants to warn us to stay away from just an outward show for the sake of being seen by and impressing others. So that your fasting may not just be seen by others, he says, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who is in secret will reward you in secret. So you can see that we have a little bit of a dilemma. Is it possible, as Joel recommends, to sound a trumpet and call a corporate season of confession and repentance to make a big deal out of things, as Joel recommends, even as we do the hard work in secret, as Matthew prescribes, Matthew's trying to help us with this question too. Is the work of repentance private or is it public? Is it a work we do as individuals or is it corporate? There's the quiz again. And how are we supposed to walk around with crosses on our faces for the rest of the day and still follow Matthew's very serious admonition that real and true change must first be worn on the heart before it's worn on the face. Ash Wednesday is just the beginning, too. It ushers in this whole season of 40 days of Lent as we prepare for Easter. But why would we spend a whole season examining our hearts for sin when we're certain of our forgiveness? Jesus, we might find ourselves saying, you know I gave it all to you. I asked for your forgiveness. If anything changes, I'll let you know. 
But that's actually what's at issue here. Things do change, and we ourselves often don't know. Our spiritual condition is so hidden, it's so personal, that it is possible to walk around and never tell a soul what's truly going on with the condition of our faith. And sometimes the soul we never tell is us. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. On Wednesdays this semester, we're walking through some community practices found in Dr. Christine Pohl's book, Living into Community. Things like gratitude and hospitality, promise-keeping and truth-telling. All right, some of us are thinking, truth-telling, let me at it. I want to be the truth-teller in this community. Let me give them a piece of my mind. I know exactly who needs to hear the truth and the truth that they need to hear. I will never forget sitting in Dr. Steve Seaman's class as a student a few years ago. Thank you for not laughing. As he went over the parts of the armor of God in Ephesians 6 and encouraged us to put on each part. And when he got to the part where he described what it would mean to put on the belt of truth, I fully expected a lecture on immersing ourselves in God's truth to combat the competing truth claims of our culture. The same kind of culture war lesson that I had heard that I had even taught about choosing God's truth to wear as a belt when we went to battle in a culture of lies. And instead, Dr. Siemens looked at us with that piercing gaze and said, the person you deceive more than anyone else is yourself. And then he began to describe the human condition with our incredible incredible propensity for self-deception. And as I sat there in a crowd of people, a horrible realization came over me, and maybe over others in the class as well, as I realized just how good I was at telling myself only what I wanted to hear, and hiding even from myself the things that I didn't. Ash Wednesday and the season of Lent are necessary recurring events in our Christian year because they are a call to blatant honesty, first with ourselves and then running to God with the truth as well. Because we are a people who would much rather live in a state of denial about our need for repentance, about the state of our souls, about the most basic fact about ourselves, which is that our mortality rate is 100%. We are a people so deeply in denial about our own mortality, nobody likes to think about that, that we will do anything to avoid admitting that someday, someday we will die. And to live in that kind of constant deception, it means it, it sounds so odd, it sounds almost ridiculous to look into another person's face who is literally standing this far away from you and have them say to you, remember, your dust, and to dust you will return. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> There's nothing happy about that statement. It's a true statement every day. 
Today's just the only day we tell the truth. Lent comes back around again every year because somehow we forget who we really are and we need this season of self-examination, of repentance, lest we begin to believe our own narratives, our own Instagram feeds, our own posturing that we've set up for the world around us but somehow told to ourselves as well. Even our spiritual practices can sometimes leave us in a state of self-deception. When I was a pastor in the local church, I once got a phone call from a man who was a member of that church. He, he called to insist that we change something in the worship service. Pastors, this is not unusual, am I right? He called to insist a good thing. He wanted us to add a time of silent prayer, an extended time of silent prayer to a particular worship service that was, shall we say, anything but silent. And I listened respectfully to what he was asking, but it wasn't something that particular worship service was going to incorporate at that time in that season. And when I was firm in my answer to him, he began to scream at me over the phone. He was raging at me. I was holding the phone away from my ear as he yelled, we have to practice silent prayer. Don't you realize how important silent prayer is? Prayer in silence has become the most important part of my devotional life. And I wanted to ask in the words of the old Dr. Phil show, how is that working for you? <laughs> I mean, how absolutely crazy that this man couldn't see the dissonance between his private spiritual practice and his public treatment of his pastor. How absolutely crazy that I can, that you can walk around calling ourselves children of God and still think about people and treat people in some of the ways that we do. That's what we're here for on Ash Wednesday, is the truth-telling. Our repentance and God's repair. And what we hope that leads to is integrity, that sweet spot of life in Christ where our inner world, our inner self, and our outer world, our outer ministry and life and relationships, where they match up, where they're integrated with each other. The integration of public and private persons into one. That's why we have to keep asking, is repentance a public or a private affair? Is our sin and our repentance individual? Or is it corporate? And even though both Matthew and Joel would tell you to start inwardly, they would agree that a deep and true inward change always produces outward results. Lest people say, as Joel puts it, where is their God? Psalm 51 says it this way, you desire truth in my inmost being. The inward is the control center, but it's the outward that will show it to the world. Psalm 51 is probably the most well-known of the Ash Wednesday passages that's usually read, but today it was sung for us, thank you, choir, for returning the Psalms to a place that we sing and hear with music, God's beautiful and poetic truth. And Psalm 51, you know this, you're sitting in a seminary, is traditionally attributed to David who offered this as a prayer of repentance after Nathan the prophet confronted David about his sexual encounter with Bathsheba and the unfolding scandal that followed. 
David abused his power as king. He sexually exploited Bathsheba. He reassigned her husband to ensure his death, which was murder, in order to cover his sin and then take Bathsheba as his wife. And what we have from that is David's cry of repentance, his prayer journal, now made public. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. It gives us a clue what his heart must have felt like in that moment. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me, he pleads. The psalm is it's beautiful. It's so poetic. We forget the gravity of the crime, the sins that led up to it. How dirty that heart in need of cleaning. How cast out and empty he must have felt. David's poetically beautiful response and the song that follows follow a very ugly sin, a series of sins, sins that I'll bet he thought he could keep secret. No doubt. No doubt he felt that the sin in his private life had nothing to do with his public role as king. That's one of our favorite self-deceptions. Is sin private or public? Will its effects be individual or corporate? It, it, it's a little like when they used to allow smoking sections in restaurants. Most of you, thankfully, are too young to remember that. But back then, they would often put the smoking section tables right next to the non-smoking section tables. And I have to tell you that having a smoking section in a restaurant doesn't work any more than having a peeing section in a pool. <laughs> it just doesn't work. These last few years, the very public news of the fall from grace of ministry leaders and ministries has been shocking and sad. We've seen the rise and fall of leaders and their ministries because of the lack of integrity in leadership. And whatever lies people told in those situations, it all began with a lie that they told themselves and a truth that they would not face. And as for whether sin can stay private and whether repentance can stay individual, the reverberating echoes of David's sin through the lives of others and his own kingdom should be our textbook here. David's lineage was the one that was going to bring about the Messiah. His kingdom was supposed to be blessed, to be a blessing to all the nations on earth. Was God going to leave a sin to pollute the heart of that plan? Even after David's beautiful and personal repentance poem in Psalm 51, a poem that we now claim as our own, ripping a page out of his private prayer book and still singing it today, corporately, by the way, even after that beautiful song of repentance, Matthew still records it. He records David's sin right on the first page of the New Testament, right in the family tree in the very first chapter. As he marks Jesus' ancestors generation by generation, Matthew records Jesse was the father of David, David the father of Solomon, asterisk, by Uriah's wife. Not even Bathsheba, asterisk, Uriah's wife, not his own. How's that for a spot on your record? Right there in the genealogy of the Messiah? He put it in the Bible, not just Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. There is no sweeping this sin under the carpet 
There's no personal and individual in Matthew 1. This, this, Matthew is saying, this is our family story. It always will be. And so Matthew put it on page one. He put it in the Bible. Recently, some family members of ours were downsizing in order to make a move. And they gave us some of the boxes of family treasures that they had been keeping for the next generation. And one of those boxes held a very old family Bible. It is, it's a beautiful old Bible. It's so big you have to pick it up with both hands. It has gold leaf on the edges and illustrations throughout. It's so old it's, it's falling apart. When you open it, both of the covers fall off on the ends. And on several colorful pages in the middle is a space to record family milestones. There's pages colorful with space left in the middle that say births, deaths, marriages. And there in beautifully scripted handwriting are distant family names, names we've never heard before, dating all the way back to 1835. Somebody was writing in this Bible in 1835. And then, after those pages, births, deaths, marriages, on the next blank page, someone has written in the same beautiful script at the top of the page, Negro's ages. Negro's ages. Followed by a list of several names and birth dates the family slaves. They wrote it in the Bible. They recorded it right in the middle of God's word. Births, deaths, marriages. Negroes, ages. I am stunned. I don't know what to do with that information except to bring it with me to Ash Wednesday and to ask these texts, to ask Joel, to ask Matthew, to ask David, whose confession I'm still singing, is repentance supposed to be public or private? Is it individual or is it corporate? And is it ever too late to say you're sorry? to say we're sorry, that I'm sorry, and that the pages that are falling out of an old Bible in my guest room have made me awake on Ash Wednesday for maybe the first in many years to some new layers of meaning of what repentance might mean in a family tree. Mine, yours, Jesus's. New layers that go back farther than I ever guessed or imagined. We can love people year-round, but we still need a day to tell them on the calendar. And we still need a day and a season to be reminded of our deep and abiding need for repentance, deeper than we ever knew. A day for repentance, forgiveness, and grace. A day for truth-telling. A moment when we are marked by both the hardest and the best truths that we will hear. The hardest first. 
Remember that you are dust, and to dust you will return. And then the best, repent and believe the gospel. Amen.